in thinking about my message this morning, I called it leadership to follow. And with that being in mind, because we're going to be looking at characteristics, character qualities of people in the church that are our leaders, uh, elders and deacons. We're going to be talking about that in a few minutes. But I wanted to think, you know, well, okay, leadership, leadership, what do we want it to look like? Well, that's where I thought about leadership to follow because we want to follow good leaders, don't we? And if somebody is leading well, it's easy to have the desire to do that. There's a saying that says, and I quote it, if you think you are leading and no one is following you, then you're just going for a walk. So think about that. If you try to research this quote, it comes up as a Afghan proverb and many other different things. It's not really pinned back to a person, but other people use it like John Maxwell that is a leadership coach, does a lot of leadership training for churches, but also secular world two leadership trainings. He uses that quote. But the funny thing is too, is that one man had this that I looked at when I was researching on the internet. He had it in the top 10 worst leadership quotes. So again, the the quote is, if you think you're leading and no one is following you, then you're just going for a walk. Well, I figured that that guy must have been a politician, right? <laughs> that thought it was one of the ten worst. But keeping with the theme of letters written like Paul did in his writing to Timothy in the books of First and Second Timothy, my mind went to a wonderful letter written December 19th, 1898 by a lady named Alice M. Robertson and it was to Theodore Roosevelt. This letter is contained in the book that Roosevelt wrote titled The Rough Riders. Now, I have a copy of that book with me today and he wrote a series of 15 books called the Sagamore series and uh, they were originally published in 1899 and I bought them on eBay, the books, and The Rough Riders is one of the 15 books. And this copy here was printed 115 years ago. 1901 was when it was printed. Isn't that cool? I, I like the thought of that. And then I have a good thing to tell you, a story about this book too. I had read it a few years ago, not this one, but a few years ago, the same book I had read. And also I had listened to the audio version of it on a trip to Wyoming and back, Danny Brossman, and I listened to the book audio. And uh, a very inspiring, fun book to read and, and, and hear. And so I jumped to my mind this letter that I wanted to look for. Well, I look in this book I find the letter, part of the letter, just the little back closing part. And I thought, where's the rest of the letter? I kept flipping back and forth. And I thought, all the luck, that page is missing. Well, what happened is when they bound these books years ago, the way they bound them is that it was printed out and folded like an accordion and then bound into the binding. And then they cut the edges so the pages would be loose. Well, that page hadn't been cut. So I took my pocket knife and cut the page open. So that was a special moment because no eyes had been laid on that 
letter in this book. I know it doesn't mean a lot to you guys, but um, I thought that was cool. But just a, a neat part of history, and we can look back at leadership and see what, what it's like. It gives us a glimpse, just like we read the books of First and Second Timothy. But let me give you a little bit of background about the Rough Riders. The Rough Riders was a nickname for the first United States Volunteer Cavalry. Spain had control of Cuba in the late 1800s. The Spanish-American War the United States participated in was April of 1898 through August of 1898, and all this took place on Cuban soil. The U.S. Army was small, and it was still healing up from the Civil War that had been 30 years previous. They called a volunteer uh, cavalry unit to go over and fight with the U.S. Army to liberate Cuba from the control of the Spaniards or the Spain. When the Army called for volunteers for this cavalry unit, the problem they had was too many people volunteering. Many more were turned away than were selected, and the men consisted of cowboys, miners, prospectors, hunters, gamblers, Native Americans, college boys, lawmen, and many retired military men that wanted to serve in this unit and go help. Theodore Roosevelt was second in command of the volunteer cavalry unit and largely in charge of picking the ones who would be in the unit. After the training and when it came time to depart for Cuba, 12 companies of soldiers were trained and ready to leave and only, but here's the catch, only eight of them got deployed uh, to Cuba. And uh, Roosevelt had the task of telling four companies of trained men here that they would be left behind. And it, uh, many of the men wept at the news that uh, they wouldn't be part of the attachment that was going over. And altogether, 1,060 rough riders that they were nicknamed uh, deployed by ship off to war in Cuba. So that's the background. With that in mind, listen to this letter written to Roosevelt, dated December 19th of 1898. My dear Colonel Roosevelt, I did not reply at once to your letter of September 23rd because I waited for a time to see if there should be need among any of our rough riders of the money you so kindly offered. Some of the boys are poor, and in one or two cases they seem to me really needy, but they all said no. More than once I saw the tears come to their eyes at the thought of your care for them as I told them of your letter. Did you hear any echoes of our Indian war hoops over your election? Um, at the time this letter was written, he had just recently been elected after the Spanish-American War. He had, Ted was elected to the mayor of New York. They were pretty loud. I was particularly exultant because my father was a New Yorker and I was educated in New York, even if I was born here. So far as I can learn, the boys are taking up the drop threads of their lives as though they had never been away. Our two rough writer students, Meager and Gilmore, are doing well in their college work. I'm sorry to tell you of the death of one of your most devoted troopers, Bert Holderman, who was here serving on the grand jury. He was stricken with meningitis in the jury room and died after three days of delirium. 
his father who was twice wounded, four times taken prisoner, and fought in 32 battles of the Civil War, now old and feeble, survives him, and it was indeed pathetic to see his grief. Bert's mother, who is a Cherokee, was raised in my grandfather's family. The words of commendation which you wrote upon Bert's discharge are the greatest comfort to his friends. They wanted you to know of his death because he loved you so. I am planning to entertain all the Rough Riders in this vicinity some evening during my holiday vacation. I mean to have no other guests, but only give them an opportunity for reminiscences. I regret that Bert's death makes one last. I had hoped to have them sooner, but our struggling young college salaries are necessarily small and the duties arduous. I make a home for my widowed mother and adopted Indian daughter who is in school. And as I have to do the cooking for a family of five, I have found it impossible to do many things I would like to do. Pardon me for burdening you with these details, but I suppose I am like your boys who say, the colonel was always ready to listen to a private as to a major general. Wishing you and yours the very best gifts the season can bring, I am very, very truly yours, Alice M. Robertson. Isn't that a cool letter that was written to him and reflects the leadership there? And then here's one sentence that Roosevelt puts after he quotes this letter in his book. He says, Is it any wonder that I loved my regiment? Cool. Cool stuff. And interesting thing too, this is just a little bit more history that uh, Ted Roosevelt, after being the governor of New York, he went on to become the vice president and uh, uh, went on to become the 26th president of the United States in 1901 after President uh, McKinley was assassinated and and, uh, he took the presidency at that time and then was voted in for another time. So he was our president from 1901 through 1909. But what I wanted us to think about, see the impact of good leadership and what it can have on those around us. And uh, um, so that's the, that's the theme that we're talking about is the, our leadership and uh, leadership in particular to the church here. So turn with me in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer, or we use the word elder, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into a snare of the devil. We have a projection here of the 15 uh, things that we just read about 
qualities. I, I call it character qualities of elders or overseers. The heading in your Bible, like mine, might say qualifications for overseers. But I see it uh, as character qualities, uh, personal character qualities in the individual. So that's why I labeled it this way. So here's the things we're just going to look at them here and go down through them. Now, while we do this, if you have your bulletin with you, flip it over, and on the back, you will see listed our six elders. Okay? So instead of me telling you their, their names, just, just look on there, and that's the six guys. So as we look down through this, think about the character issues that Paul is talking about here, okay? Aspires or desires to serve. Now, that's, that's one of the things here. We don't just appoint them and put that saddle on somebody just uh, because they've been here a long time and we figured it's about time they do that. The key is, is they need to have a desire to serve in that. So all of our guys that are doing that, the six of them right now as elders are doing that because they want to do that. And they feel that that's something they should be doing in the kingdom for the Lord and and they're being used in our church in that way. Above reproach. Uh, Husband of one wife. Sober-minded. Self-controlled. Respectable. Hospitable. Able to teach. Not a drunkard. Now, I want to expound on that a little bit. Our elders in the, here in the church don't drink. Now, see, number nine doesn't say does not drink alcohol, does it? It says not a drunkard. Well, our guys, and through the years as, as I've been involved with the elders here, they choose not to drink. They have the freedom to do that in Christ, but... They don't want to do that. You know the reason why? They don't want to be a stumbling block to people in our congregation. Now, that's cool, isn't it? Yeah, that's cool because they're saying, I could do that. And if they wanted to scripturally, we couldn't say, hey, how come you had a beer? Or or, how come you had a twisted tea? Or whatever. We couldn't condemn them with that. But what they're doing is they don't want to be a stumbling block. They want to be as much help to the people in the congregation as they can. And I think that's cool. And that's inspiring type of leadership that we want to follow after. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. Manages his own household well and with dignity. And not a recent convert. Not a recent convert. Uh, We want him to be well-grounded, and that would include somebody coming here from somewhere else that we don't know anything about. We would want them to be here for a while, and even if they had good uh, elder characteristics or qualities, those would start rising up. But as a church body, we would want to know that we're getting uh, what we think that we see. Just, Just the fact of somebody having an experience somewhere is different than it being exemplified. Um, must be well thought of by outsiders. As we look at those, I think that uh, I've experienced being around these guys through the years and growing up in the church. 
I was seven years old when I came here in 1967, and I've been in this very same church since that time. And many of the previous elders that I knew, they've already went to heaven. They've went on before us. They finished the race, and uh, they're they're ahead of us. But I have known and had the pleasure to know them and do life with them uh, together. And some of my best friends and some of my best experiences in my life involve those guys through the church. And this would even include my own father that was an elder here and and then uh, an elder in a church in Idaho that he was in and then in Washington and stuff. And just a matter of a couple weeks ago, retired, and uh, uh, but will as an elder in the church body officially, but will always be willing to help and serve in any way that he can. And so I'd say, were these guys perfect? No. I would ask myself, am I? I would ask you guys to ask yourself, are you? Certainly not. Did they or do they love the Lord? Oh yes, they do. And I've been a witness to that myself, for sure. And that includes our current elders here at Libby Christian Church. And when I think of these guys from the past to present, I have a love and respect for their willingness to be spiritual leaders of the church family. And maybe that's why the letter I read from Alice Robertson to Theodore Roosevelt strikes a chord in my heart for the love the guys had for their leader, Colonel Roosevelt, and that he had for them as fellow soldiers. Let's move on to chapter 3 now. We're going to look at the the deacons. We're starting in verse 8. Now the list is a little shorter, you'll notice here. But deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So once again, here we see the characteristics or character qualities or qualifications lined out for deacons. Dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, and hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Be tested first, again there, before serving. We see that. That makes sense. People are doing the things they're doing, and they rise up, and, and they slide into places of service and stuff because they're doing what they need to be doing. Their wives must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. The husband of one wife, managing their children and households well. Um, all of those things too, uh, except for the they expound a little more on the wives than they do in the elders section there. But those are all contained in characteristic. Now, is that things all of us want to aspire to? You know, really? 
I mean, nod your head or do you want to just not be that way? I mean, those are things that we want to, as people, as God's people, certainly, we want to have. And, you know, thinking about that, oftentimes people don't really, the the church people don't view their ministry that they have as a Christian serious enough, I think. And sometimes I lose sight of that too. But the fact is that just the fact that you go to church and that you're a Christian, you're ministering to people, okay? For the good and the bad. Even with your neighbors. If you have some type of conflict with your neighbors and they don't attend church with you, what are they probably going to say if you were the mouse in the corner? One of the very first things you're going to hear is, yeah, they go to church and they say they're a Christian. See what I mean? So, all of us, all of us have a ministry and an obligation, and we're ministering to people around us. Now, when we're talking about the things that we are in the church here, in the leadership and areas of service here, there's some particular things for the order of the church body and for the church to function. But these characteristics and these things that we see here for the elders and the deacons are things that we as Christians, God's people, should be exemplifying. And some people could do some of these things and they don't have maybe the desire for to be an elder. That's fine. You guys do that. I'll support you. I'll be your best supporter and I'll help you anyway. But they're doing many of the things that we see in the uh, qualifications and the characteristics. They're doing those. They just don't want the title of officially doing that. Um, But we see different people doing different things in our church family to accomplish what needs to be done. The elders are taking care of spiritual things. The deacons or the servants in that way are taking care of physical needs that need to happen in the church body. But the word servant translates to the word diakonos, which is out of the Greek, and that's where the word deacon comes from, the word diakonos. And the original Greek word diakonos is neuter. It, it isn't referring to male or female. And what we talked about a little more here in Sunday school uh, before this service, if you were here, was the fact of we have women that are what you would say a deaconess doing the work of that servant work in the church body as deacon, just like deacons if we think of a deacon being a male. And we have the ladies doing that same type of thing in the dealings with the things that need to happen in the church. Wonderful thing. And uh, in the church here, we see many men and women fulfilling the role of a servant or diakonos that we would say deacon by the very things that they help with and serve with in the church family. But our Men and women who take part in the church family here do a very fine job doing the things that they do. And that's why our church functions the way it does is because of the people that are willing to serve. And um, because of that, I think that we are blessed unlike any way that we could be in our church family. The blessing we get from our church family, our friends that we find in the church and stuff, I mean... We wouldn't have it if it wasn't happening. Very good stuff that we get to be part of in God's church. Chapter 
3, let's look at verse 14. We're going to break out of that. And in my opinion here, Paul gives us a reminder. This is my opinion. He gives us a reminder here of what it's all about. Okay? He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now, before we go on, I want to talk about the part there of the church being a living pillar and it's a buttress of the truth that he is talking about here. Because see, oftentimes I hear people say that I don't need to go to church or I don't need the church so that I can worship God and have a relationship with Him. Well, when I think about that, if the church is a pillar and a buttress and it's a great thing and, and God instituted the church and Paul is giving us direction to how the church can be perform the way God intends it to be, how can we turn around and say, I don't need church? Does that make sense? It really doesn't make sense. So when we catch ourselves feeling that way or thinking that way, we got to remember what Paul is saying about the church here. The church is important and there isn't anything that you're going to replace it with if it's working the way that it should be working. And I think that many times we don't ask the question really about what is the purpose and the importance of the church and we just think that it can be done other ways. But Paul would argue with you uh, very eloquently uh, on the fact of what the church is and what it stands for. But here's what I want you to think about too is pay attention because uh, the church is who? It's us. Yeah, it's us. So, you know, when we're talking about the church and we're saying the church, the church, the church is stuff, we have to remember that, that God's church is across the whole world and stuff. But here in Libby, Libby, at Libby Christian Church, when we're talking about the church, we're talking about us. These are things that we're involved in, things that we need to be doing, things ways we need to live our life and to show those around us that we are Christians. Now, in verse 16, it says, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Now that there is talking about Jesus. The story of Jesus seen in the flesh, authenticated by God's Spirit, seen by the angels and witnessed by them, proclaimed to the nations. We ourselves have heard that story of Jesus and what He has done and then taken up in glory. Here's the part I like. is Jesus is back with His Father and He's going to come back like He has promised that He would do. And to that, because of the world that we're living in and stuff, I say, come Lord Jesus and rescue us from this world. Um, I look forward to the day. It wouldn't hurt my feelings if uh, right after I had one more cup of coffee the day He came. But 
we have that to look forward to. And the things that we're talking about comes through church, the church of God, God's church, the one that His Son laid down His life for and that we get to be part of. We're learning those things. We're putting the things together. The pieces of the puzzle are coming together right here for all of us uh, because what God has done for us. So um, with those with those thoughts in mind, I just want you to pray with me, please. Father, as we come, uh, God, we're thankful that uh, you love us and that you have made a way for us through your son, Jesus. And God, also, you didn't just leave us hanging out there. Um, even for things in the church, you told us things that needed to happen in the way uh, as your servants, we need to live our lives and do things. You put an order there, God. But also we realize that the church is wonderful. Um, It's a pillar, a a buttress, a fortress, and um, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We know that, God. And we know that uh, the time is going to come when you are going to send your son back and he's going to return. And in the meantime, you have uh, left us this wonderful place the church family, uh, all these people that I'm talking about today. And also we have friends that we know in town and people that we live around, even family members and stuff, and even different places in the world and different states around and stuff that we uh, are part of our lives that don't know you. And so help us as they look at us to not just scratch us off because we're empty Uh, Christians that go to church and uh, are no different than what you would call us to be, Lord. And we know we're not perfect, so we love you. Thank you for all this that comes through your son Jesus, and we ask this in his name. Amen.